0: On the pod today, Derek Bodner joins us to talk all things Sixers, specifically changes in the front office, moves to be made in the draft and free agency, and Charles Barkley's criticisms of the two Sixers stars. Welcome to the Sixer Sense podcast, hosted by co-site experts, Lucas Johnson and Christopher Klein.
2: Welcome
1: for the first time, Derek Bodner, senior writer of The Athletic. Hey, fellas, how are we doing tonight?
2: I'm doing well.
3: Doing great. We're excited to have Derek on the podcast.
0: Yeah, we're excited. Welcome to the podcast, Derek. Looking forward to your insight.
2: Yeah, My pleasure.
1: So we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. Chris, go ahead and take us away with our first subject.
3: Yeah, so we're going to talk about the Sixers front office here off the bat. Made some moves over the past week. They um, hired Peter Dinwiddie as Executive Vice President of Basketball Operations and Prosper Karangwa as VP of Player Personnel. Dinwiddie comes after spending 14 years with the Indiana Pacers. He was third in command there before the Sixers hired him. He's expected to be second in command to Elton Brand now with the Sixers. And Karangwa was a scout for the orlando magic he had been with that organization since 2012 so derek will go right to you what were your initial thoughts on those additions
2: yeah i mean i think th- the additions are fine like i think they're good additions i mean peter dinwiddie has been under consideration for gm spots in the past with memphis and with uh with the bucks so i think they are good additions you know i think dinwiddie comes pretty highly regarded across the league in terms of um you know his overall work ethic and being able to go from, um, you know, basically ticket sales to the basketball side to the third-in-command with the Pacers. to so, you know, the second-in-command with the Sixers, like it shows a work ethic. It shows ability and willingness to learn and go outside of his comfort zone. He's really good with the cap. Um, he's negotiated a lot of contracts. He's he's has those kind of contacts across the league. I think a lot of people think pretty highly of him. Um, Karangwa is a little bit more of an unknown. It's it's tough sometimes with these um, directors of scouting, because they can make all the recommendations in the world, it ultimately comes down to the general manager and those guys, sort of up at that level, who have to, uh, you know, determine who to who to select. And it's you, you don't really know. Like we can sit here and analyze Orlando's track record and their draft uh, stra- strategies and whatnot. Ultimately, I mean, Orlando's been hit or miss. Like they have some wins, have some misses. Uh, some of those those hits that they had in in scouting, they ended up trading away in bad deals specifically a surge of trade. But I think overall they've had some successes in the draft. I think really what it comes down to though is whether or not you trust the people at the top. Like I think Peter Dinwiddie is a, you know, he is a qualified number two basketball executive in an organization. Um, Karangwa mm-hmm. is, is, is a qualified director of scout and we can debate whether or not he's top of the top, top of their vertical, as the Sixers like to say a couple years ago or not. And truthfully, we probably don't know. But they are legitimate. They're not, they're not reaches, I would say. The question is, do you think Elton Brand is the guy to sort of aggregate now all these different opinions? Do you th- trust Scott O'Neill and Sixers ownership to listen to their basketball people? And do they maybe have strengths in enough areas outside of that? Um, like specifically in, in terms of analytics where you can have that perspective added as well. And those are where I still have my biggest question marks. You know, like I said, I think uh, Peter Dinwiddie and Karangwa is, they're they're both, you know, legitimate in their roles. The question is whether or not um, they're enough to overcome maybe some inexperience or some uncertainty in other areas.
1: Well, to piggyback off your point, it doesn't, I think in the grand scheme of things, and I'm actually going to take the Chris' approach of being a uh, c- uh, cynic in this, group. as long as ownership's involved, I don't, I don't think these guys are going to be able to fully embrace their jobs. I think we can all, just, you know, I think ownership was very. I think, it, I think it was clear to everybody that follows the Sixers that ownership was involved in the coaching search, even though they said it was supposed to be Brand's, uh, you know, choice. Ownership was very involved, and. While these guys, like you said, they they're qualified for their positions. We don't know exactly, and you know, Dinwoody in particular. I think he's he's an up and coming, you know, executive in this league. If owners aren't going to listen to these guys in the grand scheme of things, I think it's it's all for naught. And that's that's just my approach of it, to be uh, to be quite frank.
2: Yeah, and look, I mean, ownership wouldn't be listening to. Peter Dinwiddie. Anyway, ownership would be look, listening yeah. to Elton Brand. Elton Brand would be listening to Peter Dinwiddie. Um, so that 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 sort of structural problem and lack of confidence, like that, wasn't going to be solved by this hire. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, outside of a change at CEO uh, with Scott O'Neill, I don't I don't think there would have been anything that could have been done that would have. And even then, you still have to trust Josh Harris. Um, there was just nothing that was going to be like, there was nobody they were going to outside of, uh, and this is where you get into a little bit of the, um, uh, the structure of the Sixers front office over the years, outside of somebody that, you know, wouldn't come here unless he was guaranteed to have that kind of autonomy, like, like a Daryl Morey, which I'm, you mm. know, pick up on the hot name, but somebody of that stature outside of that. And we, we knew they weren't going to hire someone over Elton brand like that for a while now. Um, there wasn't going to be a number two basketball executive they're going to hire where you would say that 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 quells my concern there.
3: We've seen that Alex Rucker is going to be reassigned to a different role because Dinwiddie is taking his title. Obviously, Rucker is big on analytics. We've seen a lot of reports about the Sixers maybe moving away from analytics and towards quote basketball minds. But do you think anything is really going to be different? And do you trust Elton Brand in conjunction with ownership to really? change how they approach building this team.
2: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. They they we've heard all fall about how the move, they need more basketball minds. Elton Brand came out and directly said this. And the number two that they hire um is 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 a business guy whose expertise is in the salary cap. Um mm-hmm. and you know Karanga obviously is a basketball guy. He played at Siena. He played I think seven years overseas, but he's essentially replacing Mark Eversley's role in the organization. Um you know it is no, um, I mean, if you're being completely frank, I don't think there's anything that Elton Brand has done in his time that you would say he should be the lead basketball executive in an organization like if 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 you just took if you ignored that he was here and keeping the status quo, you know it's not the status quo because there's the whole collaborative and then the c e o and all that stuff but if you just ignore the keeping the status quo, would there have been any other team that would have said? we're running this job search and Elton brand is the one that we are landing on. Like probably not. He hasn't put in the time. He hasn't proven that he is worthy of that position. And the Sixers are trusting him now to build out his staff and to be able to sway ownership in their decision-making it. it no, I don't have confidence. That this is fully resolved. Um no,
1: yeah I like definitely... Derek said, Chris, oh sorry, no, yeah, go for it. I was just gonna say I'm gonna echo what Derek said unless they get somebody of Daryl Morey stature, which who knows um at this point, but um and have him above brand, I don't really see any change in giving this front office any legitimacy
2: and you you've still you've still got some of the people underneath him or adjacent to Elton who. Mm-hmm we very involved and let like everyone outside of, you know, you're essentially Phil Jabbour. Wasn't, he wasn't the one signing Al Horford and Tobias Sarasos contracts. Um, Sergio Oliva was not signing these guys to the contracts. All of those guys are still here. So not only like what I think is really interesting is, okay. Alex Rucker was essentially the, the number two in that organization. He, he had his hands involved in everything. You're going to tell me that, OK, he, he didn't do a good enough job to remain the number two. I get that. But then why is he good enough to be running your analytics department? Like, why? Why are you not looking if, if he took that data and misapplied it? Why are we not reevaluating that? Like, why are we not? Um, and that's why when you talk about maybe, like maybe they might not prioritize analytics as much. Well, it doesn't seem like they have all that much interest in building that out. You're essentially saying Alex didn't do a good enough job. But we're going to keep him in the analytics department. It sounds like he's going to be, you know, deprioritized, and a- analytics in general is going to be deprioritized. Uh, no, I don't. It doesn't really feel like they have all that much of a direction. It doesn't feel like they really know how to fix the problems, um, or fix what led to the problems that they they have. It it's uh, look. I think Peter Dinwiddie is a like I said a very legitimate number two, um, but I have questions pretty much everywhere else in the organization.
1: And another thing that we gotta remember, Derek, is during uh Doc Rivers press conference he said he was going to be working alongside uh Elm Brand, and that's another voice
2: It's another voice, and so, it's another voice that doesn't exactly have the greatest track record of g m exactly yeah mhm exactly
3: yeah, I definitely think there are some some pretty big issues here that the Sixers haven't addressed. I mean we can go back to the you know the Colangelo era, we know ownership really didn't want to fire him that was a pretty reluctant decision on their end it kind of had to be done or he technically resigned but it seems like they're pretty comfortable with the group they have and they aren't really willing to to stray too far from that path but, i think uh, this
1: ownership is yeah i think they're they're loyal to their guys to a fault i mean it took uh adam silver getting involved with sam hanky to make ownership make changes there right so Seems like unless outside pressure is applied, ownership's not going to change the status quo.
2: Yeah, um, I'm going to avoid where I was going to go with that. Yeah, no, I mean, it if is. You want to,
1: hey, no, no, no. By all means, <laughs> yeah. if you're a guest, but dive into I, it. If, if you I would to, if no, if you look. I, me, I'm
2: not. I'm not going to go all the way. I'll just say that the pressure to get rid of Sam Hankey was not all from the outside. Is all that I will say.
1: Okay, fair enough.
2: Yeah, no. Look, I think. I think oh, by and large, and look, I think. Josh Harris is sometimes criticized for meddling. And I don't think, I think sometimes he will get involved, but I don't think that's a role he wants to play. I think he wants to empower his front office, hire the right people, give them the resources and let them go to work. But I also think right now he doesn't really know who to trust. And I think there's a lot of voices in his ear. And I think that's where the Sixers get into problems. They don't have that sort of top down structure with a proven leader in place. And I think that sort of void has led some people to move into that decision-making process. Um, So I think, I think Josh Harris is very loyal. I think he doesn't want to be overhauling his front office every two to three years. Um, And I think he believes in people that maybe I wouldn't believe in. Uh, And I think that gets him into some trouble. I mean, just go back and look at, 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 the whole Doug Collins um, Tony DeLeo, like there was a th- this is not the first time you have had too many people with decision making pro- uh, power in the front office. It's been um, it's been a little bit of a mess here. There, there was a three year window where to say what you want about Sam Hinkie and whether or not he was smart or the right GM for the rebuild or, or, or his, his tenure was a success. It was a clear structure and you knew who was in charge. You knew who to give credit and blame to and they could function as a unit. And that has been the exception to the rule for the Sixers during Josh Harris's ownership.
3: That's definitely a fair point. And I guess we can move pretty quickly through this subject since you've kind of touched on them already. But the Sixers lost Sergey Oliva, who's going to Utah to uh, take a coaching job. And Phil Jabour, who was their director of scouting, he is now going to Sacramento. Um, what you, were your thoughts on them leaving those positions now being open. And do you think maybe Dinwiddie and Karanwa will maybe absorb some of those duties?
2: Well, certainly Karanwa will with Jabor. I think, I think Phil did a good job. You know, I think Phil and Vince Rosman, the whole scouting team, by and large, if you want to look at one arm of the organization that has been pretty consistent with, with one Markel Fultz broken jumper exception, but other than that, they've been pretty consistent in their ability to find talent. That is certainly the, 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 portion of the front office I would have the least grievances with. Um, So I think Phil did a good job. He has risen through the ranks of the Sixers organization, hired in 2014. You know, and again, that that whole scouting department, it's sometimes hard to know exactly who to give credit to. But I do think he was a, 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 I I think that part of the organization did well. Um, Sergey I think, is actually a really smart guy. And I think he has a good background in both statistics and basketball. And he works sort of as a liaison between the front office and the coaching staff. And and this is why, like, you know, there we we can debate the Sixers' rotations, and certainly Sergey had a very strong influence in that. But he wasn't telling anyone to sign, like he wasn't the reason behind signing Al Horford. He wasn't the reason behind trading for Tobias Harris. If you look at the problems with this organization, I don't think it was, I, and again, rotations are fun to debate because everybody has an opinion on them. I think this is much more of a player problem and a contract problem, and a flexibility problem, and an assets problem. Sergey wasn't really the driving force behind those mistakes and those wasted resources. Um, so I think he was a, you know, I think analytics have a part to play in team building and in strategy building. I think Sergei had a, a, an ability to speak both languages between the analytics department and the coaching staff. And I, I actually think he will be missed. And I know a lot of people, certainly the Sixers, you can read some of the stuff that's been written, want to sort of pin a lot on him. I don't really buy that. Uh, and I don't think it is as clear-cut as, as people make it out to be. I think he is a, a smart basketball mind, um, and that's why he got a, a job so easily.
1: Yeah, I've, I've only heard about good things about Sergi. I, I honestly hadn't heard too much about uh, Jabbar. But from what I've heard, is Sergi was, uh, after Mark uh, Eversley left, he took over the uh, draft uh, process for the Sixers front office during the hiatus. And I've heard nothing but good things. And like you said, Derek, these guys are not the reason for the Sixers' problems. Like you said, outside of Markel, you can say that the Sixers hit on pretty much every draft pick. Even uh Horkon Korkmaz, Korkmas, who took a while to develop, you know, he he's proven to be at least like a tenth or ninth guy on the bench for a competitive team. So I don't think these guys are the problem. And I think that they're gonna thrive where they're going to, especially I I think Phil's gonna have a really fun time in Sacramento, assuming that they get a new head coach, because I don't think Luke Wong's gonna be there for forever, but Overall, I think these guys are going to be good, good fixtures in front offices, and for Sergi's case, uh, coaching staff in the NBA moving forward.
2: Yeah, I think anyone thinking that, oh, we got rid of Sergi and now we have Peter Dinwiddie, I, if you, I think that solves all or accounts for all the mistakes. I, I think you're, um, I think you're being a little optimistic there.
1: But we're going to go ahead and transition to our next subject. We're going to talk about offseason moves here about changing the, enhancing the front the, the roster to help enhance both their stars as well as you know help the coach bring in the type of system that would help enhance those stars. So Derek, and you know you have your ear to the ground, I'm sure. Have you heard of any possible uh, free agent targets or if you haven't, have, do you have any in particular in mind that you think the sixers should go after?
2: Oh, geez, if somebody told me who they were targeting in free agency, I'd wonder why they were telling me this that that far out in advance. Um, No, I don't, I don't, If even if I would hear something like that, I wouldn't trust it because why would you be honest with me? Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I haven't spent a whole lot of time um, looking too deep into free agency at this point. Um, It is interesting. It So much has to happen in terms of reshaping the roster and what's the, uh, the CBA actually going to set at and what's BRI going to be set at. Um, no, I don't particularly have, uh, too much in terms of who I would target just because I quite frankly, haven't sat down and and thought about it too much. Um, Mm -hmm. they are in a tough spot. Like I said, with only that low level, mid level exception available. Um, I will say, I think this is going to be an interesting year because I don't know how many teams are really going to use their mid levels. And that has, twofold impact first i don't know how many people are going to truly opt out and that certainly impacts who you can then pursue but also if you are a team willing to use the entirety of your your mid-level even the taxpayer mid-level you can maybe get a little more bang for your buck than you would in other years just because there's so much income uncertainty and future salary cap uncertainty so i think it will be interesting but in terms of a specific name i truthfully don't have one for you right now
1: what about you chris
3: yeah, I, I mean, that doesn't seem like the Sixers are going to have enough um, to, you know, bring any, like, truly notable names in, you know. They're not going to be able to pay for, like, the Goran Dragics of the world or anything, especially after, you know, his run in Miami this postseason. But mm-hmm. obviously they need guard talent. They need shooters and playmakers first and foremost. I'm assuming that's the kind of player they will be going after. But, like, Derek, I don't I don't have a ton of, you know, specific names in mind. But I guess another question that we could pin on this is, Derek, do you think the Sixers are going to pay their full mid-level? Because we know they have a lot of money on the books already. As you mentioned, there's a lot of financial uncertainty with uh, you know all that's going on in the world with COVID. Do you think the Sixers are going to spend all the money that they possibly can in this free agency period?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's so Josh Harris has, has never paid the luxury tax. Part of that is situational, right? Like he bought the team... They had the brief run with Doug Collins, and then they had to tear it down. Uh, and during that rebuild, I mean, Sam Hankey wouldn't have wanted to be near the luxury tax because he wanted that salary cap space to be used as trade filler um, or trade flexibility so he can acquire assets. So part of that is because they were never in like the, the life cycle of the team, but it is interesting because you've just never seen how Josh Harris responds to a huge tax bill. And the Sixers will have a huge tax bill coming up. You know, I think, Doc Rivers signing is a good indication because of all the coaches they could have gone for. Doc Rivers is not cheap, and I think mm-hmm. in these uncertain financial times, I think that is a good indication that Josh Harris, I do believe he will. I mean, he has to pay the tax; like they've committed too much in salary. But I, I, do I know for sure whether he would be willing to? No, I don't. But I think there's a like I, I, I don't tr- truthfully think Josh Harris will go cheap here. Um, the question will come down to. Is there somebody worth it? When I project it out in a luxury tax, is 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 that player going to provide that kind of value? But I I, yeah, I think I think I think they would for the right person. I do.
1: To piggyback off our original question, there's one player that I know if he offs out, the Sixers should not go after, and that's Austin Rivers, because we do not need that in our our lock. That's for sure. Um, well,
2: you, yeah, you know the Sixers are going after this are against going after the sons of prominent people in your organization. They've proven that. Oh, yes,
1: of course. So, yeah, 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 no, definitely. And then, um, but two guys that I think of that could be potential targets, and one of them, me and Chris have adamantly fought on on this podcast about, so Chris knows exactly who I'm about to say, um, is one is Isaiah Thomas. He just got – well no think about it. I, I I know that's that's everybody's initial reaction but he got hip surgery now he has four inch of motion in his in his leg again so there's that and if he can give us eighty percent of what he could back when he was with the Celtics off the bench that's a win for the sixers because I could definitely see doc rivers using him like he's used Jamal uh, Jamal Crawford or Lou Williams in the past uh okay. another guy that I can yeah another guy the other guy that I can see is uh, is reggie jackson i think he's willing he's proven that he's willing to go to a winning team he saw a lot of success with doc in his short run with the Clippers, i think and you know his reputation still isn't great because of all the injuries that he had in detroit so i think he takes a one-year flyer with the sixers on a a minimum contract and he can be that you probably have him come off the bench but you could start him if you want to and he's good for at least 14 points a game and five assists
2: yeah, I mean, look, both of those guys can dribble and shoot. And that would, well, Reggie can sometimes shoot. The last couple of years, he's yeah. been better from deep. Um, he's certainly not a consistent shooter that you would want. But both of them have skill sets of Sixers. If you're talking a minimum salary, I mean, sure. Like, take him yeah, over Howell Neto. Like, give it a shot, sure. Oh,
1: uh-huh. so, yeah, don't talk about Howell Netto in front of Chris. That's his guy right there.
2: <laughs> look, I think funny. Howell Neto is a fine. 10 to 15 minute per game regular season point guard. He he just gets hunted in the playoffs defensively. and yeah, There's not much I, he can do about that.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't have, have that high an opinion of him. I, I think that's a dead-on assessment. But, I mean, yeah, just he was, as far I was, as IT goes.
2: He was not as bad as, I think, he, he became a, a, a real sore spot. But for what he is, he is not as bad as I think people made him out to be. He's a
1: third string point guard playing second string point guard minutes. That's that's what I see him as and that's my I don't I don't have a problem with the player himself. I just have a problem with the fact that the and this goes back down brand. You sign a third string point guard and you know you had Trey Burke who was phenomenal for the Mavericks during, you know, the bubble and everything but you know, let's not let's not bring up that old sword. cuz but my point is is that Neto Neto is a third-string point guard playing second-string point guard minutes, and sometimes the Sixers needed even more than that. And Neto is just not that guy. And that's my point with it, with how the team was
2: structured. That that's a lot like my complaints about Alec Burks. I mean, my claim, my complaints about Alec Burks is that people thought he was something he wasn't because he was the only one on the Sixers who could do that. Like mm-hmm. I, he he got hot for a stretch there. And all of a sudden he became like the key to beating the Celtics. That has never been Alec Burks' game. Like he is going to hit a cold spell. And when he hits a cold spell, he's not going to give you any value. And that's fine for like a 15 minute per game scoring threat off the bench. But I think a lot of people thought he was going to be the, you know, he should be uh, put, put Alec Burks in a pick and roll every time down the court. And that's just a, when your team is in a spot where you are relying on that, that is freaking terrifying, and and really shows the, the amount of mistakes made along the way.
1: So sure. can I can I just ask, ask you what did you think of Trey Burke on the team? Because I thought Trey Burke was uh, uh, an answered prayer for the Sixers. No, he's not perfect, but he could he could he could do what the Sixers needed in the playoffs. And I mean, I, I thought I thought
2: position. I thought if 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 Trey Burke was playing twenty five minutes per game, he might have been the worst player. Worst defensive player in the playoffs. Um, you know, okay. I think he, you know, I, th- I, I, frankly, as an offensive player, I think he has a role. Like the shooting off a screen, he's a little bit more of a playmaker than Alec Burks is. Um, misses some passes because he's so short and he can't, uh, can't, can't see all the vision lanes, but he has a little more of a willingness and creativity as a passer, whereas Alec Burks is one of the worst on-ball passers I've seen in quite some time. Um, you know, I thought he had a role. I do think like people give Dallas a lot of credit for bringing him back and putting him in that role. Like Dallas, Dallas let him go last year. Like, and there's generally a reason for that. Um, you know, I thought he played very well for them this year. Play had a couple huge games in the playoffs. I sort of fall in the same spot though. If you're relying on Trey Burke to be filling that role, you're Mm -hmm. really playing with fire. Like I don't, I don't. Like he is, and especially on a team that has so many other, like that's sort of like the the problem with the Sixers too. You have a lineup that's all defense. Mm-hmm. But in order to rectify that, you start playing players who have no prayer of defending in the playoffs. Furkan Korkmaz, Trey Burke in your example. Um, there's just nobody who can give you even a little bit on both sides. And it's, it's, it's a tough spot. Like, should they have kept him? Probably. Um, did I necessarily buy that? Cause he shot like what, like 45% from three or something absurd with the Sixers Did I expect, yeah. like there was a part of me, I expect them to come out and shoot 31% in the second half just because he's never been that consistent of a three point shooter, but he was, I mean, he was, he was good. He was good with the Mavericks. It's just, I, I'd, I'd love to see someone like that who has a little bit more on the other side of the court, but it's, everything is a trade-off with this team. Fair enough.
1: Fair enough. Uh, so let's move along to our next section. Obviously you said that you haven't been told anything about any potential off season move. So what trades do you expect to see this off season? Obviously I think we can all say Al Horford, but uh, do you have any destinations for Al Horford or is there any other trades that you expect to see the team make this off season?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a great question because if, like if you're going to tell me a destination, I have to figure out who wants a center who costs $30 million or $27 million a year. And there just aren't that many teams that are in need of a center and willing to invest that many resources in it. You know, everyone's going to go to Sacramento. And Sacramento was the other team. There are three teams that really pursued Al last year. First was Boston, who didn't expect him to opt out. Um, but once a number got as high as it did, I think they lost interest pretty quickly. And then there was mm-hmm. Sacramento and the Sixers. So Sacramento mm-hmm. very clearly had interest last year. Now they've, they've revamped their front office. Um. So do they still have interest? I don't know. But certainly in terms of, and I mean, the Buddy Hill speculation took a little bit of a hit when they brought Dave Yeager over because the two of them don't exactly have a perfect history together. But, you know, they are certainly a team who has had interest in the past. I don't know if they still do. And I think that'll be something to watch. Outside of that, you know, I, the Hornets maybe, I don't, who knows? Like, it's it's real tough. It's just a, there aren't that many people interested in spending that much money on a 34-year-old center. It's, I, it's tough to say. Um, I think the most interesting name in the trade market is going to be Josh Richardson. Just because mm-hmm. in part because he doesn't really... You, you just want more shooting from that spot, more consistent shooting, um, a little bit more shot creation on the perimeter to where you're not covering your eyes every time he takes two or three dribbles. Like There could be a better fit to put in that role. And also mm-hmm. he has trade value. You know, I think he has more value to some teams than he does on the Sixers, which really makes him a prime candidate to be traded. And also, I mean, we talk about the luxury tax when you're starting that big of a luxury tax bill. Are the Sixers going to want to give him his next contract or will they let him go anyway? So I think he is the ones to sort of watch out for. You know, Tobias is just it, it would be tough to move him. And I, you know, I think more or less, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very critical of Tobias. I think he is overrated by many, including, I mean, Elton Brandon and the Sixers front office. But I think he can still add value to the team. Um, whereas, mm-hmm. what you would get back in trade because he's such a negative contract and such a negative asset um, that you, I don't think you can get anyone who's nearly as productive as him. So I think it's going to be tough to see him move. So I think I think Al and, and Josh Richardson are two most likely.
3: Yeah, I think I'm on the same page, Derek. In other
2: words, undoing the entire 2019 offseason.
3: <laughs> yeah. Please, please. Uh, exactly. um, can we just get Jimmy back, too?
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like with Al, of course the Sixers are probably going to you know, look and try to trade him as hard as they can. But, again, I, I really just haven't seen a spot where it makes sense for the other team to trade for Al Horford. You know, we can mention, sh- like, Chicago, but they have Wendell Carter and Larry Markin and, and Daniel K. Players, you know, Golden State. Like, do you want to trade Al Horford for Andrew Wiggins? Is that really no, no, where the don't. Sixers want to go? Probably not. <laughs> so there, there's not a lot.
2: I, I a don't lot want that there. trade to happen because I don't want to spend the next three years of my life debating on Twitter whether whether Andrew Wiggins is actually good. Please don't do that.
3: To um, me. <laughs> yeah. And Wiggins' contract is longer and has more guaranteed money than Horford. He, he's one of the few players who might actually have a worse contract. So I, oh, I would for sure. advocate Absolutely. against that. Yep. Um, but yeah, like you said, Tobias is probably stuck here for at least a couple more years. There's really nothing the Sixers can do about that unless some other team, uh, you know, goes insane. But uh, yeah, I think Josh Richardson is someone the Sixers should dangle. I, I like the idea of maybe like a Spencer Dinwiddie swap with Brooklyn. I think he would do a lot of good for the Nets. I think he makes a lot of sense there.
2: But uh, I would do that in a second.
3: Yeah, I would do that it in would a second. Depend- also, also
2: Nets- low-key, I would love to see... Sports Talk Radio, get their Dinwiddies confused. That would be fun, too.
1: Oh, that would be fun, too, definitely. Yeah, I, I don't mean, think Dinwiddie Rutgers doesn't do that trade, but... I think no, I don't... Be...
2: I, if, if they put him on the market, and look, we can debate whether or not he's going to fit in their next year's rotation. If they put him on the market, I think they get a much better offer.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, much better than Josh Rich said in, say,
3: those first-round pick this year. That's I agree, what I would I
1: yeah.
3: um Yeah very possible but uh, the Sixers are really just kind of you know they've drawn themselves into a corner there's not a lot you can do with the pieces that they have they don't have any financial flexibility they don't have any contracts you know besides maybe Josh that people really want Uh, you could use Matisse of course or Shake as you know trade bait but there's better trade bait out there on other teams Mm -hmm. so I mean, obviously, the big like elephant in the room is Chris Paul, and who exactly is going to go after him? We've seen reports that the Sixers and the Knicks and the Bucks have interest, but if Milwaukee really wants Chris Paul, they probably have a better package. If the Knicks really want Chris Paul; they can probably offer more in terms of draft capital. I don't know why the Knicks would do that, but they're the Knicks, so it's very possible. Uh, so we'll see what happens, but I don't, I don't have the most optimism.
1: Yeah, yeah. for me, I. One other destination that I want to add as a possibility, and I, Derek, I want your opinion on this. As I could, I could see with Gantoni and Maury gone, I they need they have a need at center because I don't expect them to stick with Microball. How would you feel about Al Horford being traded to Houston for some of their rotational guys?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that probably comes down to like what exactly. I mean. <laughs> There's a couple different ways. Give me a useful player. Sure. Give me shorter contracts, Sure. Um, and without knowing exactly what Houston's, you know, salary cap situation is like, yeah, I think there's probably something that could be worked out there. Um, it's tough to sort of speculate right now when you don't know who on Houston is going to be making those basketball decisions and how they're going to value evaluate the pieces that they have. Um, I mean, what, like, what exactly are we uh, talking about? Like, well, I think I I a, going for
1: well, I had a hypothetical trade that I wrote on earlier uh, this month, or I believe it was uh, Eric Gordon, Roko, or Al Horford in the first, the twenty-first pick. Sure. Yeah. yeah.
3: I I just don't I th- know if Houston does that because Roko is what I would consider him a, a better player probably than Al at this point. And oh, yeah, maybe definitely. they don't want to stick with PJ and Rocco in the, you know, front court, but I don't, it didn't not work. I mean, Houston small ball was pretty effective and there are more affordable, decent center options out there. Not a lot of teams oh, yeah. are spending big money on centers. As Derek mentioned earlier, you can find like a vet minimum center who can fill 25 minutes a game and probably do fine and then rely on those small ball groups late in games Uh So I I really don't see why they would be in a a rush to trade important guys for Horford, whose contract is just you know monstrous at this point.
2: I mean, look, I think other guys
1: behind besides Roko, but yeah, I get what you're saying too.
2: I think with with I mean, Houston's real interesting because they have a very unique style of play, a style of play that quite frankly takes a little bit of courage to play, and when they fill out their you know, their staff, are they going to have that same kind of appetite to be experimental? Even if it worked out for half of the mm-hmm. season, will they continue down that trend? And I think there's reason to believe that not everyone front office coach would be willing to play like that. And Cause when you go out on a limb like that, you really subject yourself to a lot of criticism if it doesn't work. And I think that's, I, th- I think the NBA by and large, and look, the NBA has changed very drastically here in the last decade, 15, 20 years. But by and large, people like the comfort of it's been done before. And even when the three point revolution happened, a lot of people criticized Houston and Golden State and even Doc Rivers a little bit criticized people for going a little too quickly towards the three ball if they didn't have the personnel for it. So I think there's reason to believe that Houston might want to change it up. Um, but that does for seem sure. like an awful good. Like it It seems like a, a good trade for the Sixers and B, it. We have to see who they uh, they end up hiring.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And that was just an idea. But let's move on. Uh, one last top uh, subject in this topic is: uh, who do you who are you looking at for the twenty first pick? Assuming that the team keeps the pick, who who do you think would be a good fit for the Sixers there at that twenty first?
2: Yeah, I mean, can you shoot and can you dribble?
1: <laughs> yeah, <So> guys like <laughs> Kerry Lewis Jr., Tyrell Terry, maybe even Cole Anthony if he's still available. Guys like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, tr- truthfully, I haven't again sat down and I I have opinions, sure, but I want to do a little bit more research. Um, it is, and I mean, look, I, I, you could even talk to me. In, I mean, I don't know if they'd play him, um, but even if you want to talk me into taking if like if there's a big man you actually think can be a backup big man, like, mm-hmm. yes, pay two million dollars for that guy so you don't have to justify spending 110 million, like for a team that has a lot of big men, they don't actually have many centers outside of like, I don't want to go into next year with Norvell Pell as your backup center. So I don't even have a a, a problem drafting a center in order to uh, try to lock down a position you haven't been able to lock down for a long time and overreacted and spent too much because of that. So either a a dribbly shooty guard or a center, um, I could talk myself into either one. I, yeah. Like I said, I, before I actually put my, my name down on giving recommendations, I have to do a little bit more research, which is pretty much all I'm doing here over the next month. i looking forward to it, but I just haven't completely gotten around to it.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's, again, yeah, just dribblers and shooters is really all the sixers I've needed for a while now. <laughs> but building off your point about maybe taking uh, a center, I mean, Poku is a guy that I really like. I, I, I don't know if I can say his full name uh, uh, fluently but Alexej, <laughs> Alexej Pokushevsky, something in that vein. He, I mean, he's a top 10 guy for me. He's a seven footer who can, you know, shoot and move like a wing. Obviously there's always appeal with those guys. I don't know if he's someone you could play next season. He might not even be in the NBA next season, but if he's there at 21 and you're not super sold on the guards, or you think maybe we can get, you know, DJ Augustine or something in free agency, then I'd be totally down for for that pick just personally.
1: Yeah, I you know, a big man wouldn't be completely out of the realm for me, but it had to be somebody like Jalen Smith. I, I, he's he's the one like mid first round guy that I'm really sold on because he can stretch the floor and he's a good rim protector. That's what you need from a big man on this team with Ben Simmons. And I think that Jalen Smith can provide both. I'm not sure about pokoshevsky and uh, regarding that. Not just when he gets here or, you know, can he be a room protector or if he's
3: going to be more or less like Spencer Hall's type guy. Yeah, uh, it'll be both. another when is Dario coming over situation. I don't mm-hmm. know if the fans yeah, exactly. can handle that. I don't think anybody can handle that right now with everything else going on.
2: And uh, also just the level of competition that he played against. Like that that is, is one which would be really interesting because it is. Um, it, it's sometimes tough to translate. And I remember going back when I watched Giannis in Second Division Greece. And we were one of the few. I was I was at Draft Express at the time. And we'd gotten some uh, footage before. Really, he became a name in, in 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 public draft circles, and just watching it, and it's just like this is YMCA ball. It's really like yeah, he's clearly very athletic, and has an exceptional body. But how quickly will that translate? How well will that translate if he gets bumped off his spot? Like there was a lot of uncertainty just because that level of, co- of competition was so far away from what you're used. To. Like the difference between second division Greece and you know, top division Spain is enormous. Um, like that does not compare to the ACB and it is, it's tough. It's a, which is part of why the draft is so much fun, but that would be a, uh, I think he's an intriguing player. That would be tough to make that projection. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, it's definitely a risk. Um, but we're gonna, we're gonna move into some talk about doc rivers. Now, uh, Derek, just in general, what do you think River's biggest impact is going to be on the players, um, just whether it's in terms of system or, you know, motivationally? How do you think, you know, what do you think his biggest impact is going to be?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I think that is where he can make the biggest impact is motivationally or, or in terms of accountability or, you know, I think the biggest question you have, you know, I think, I think, first of all, I think a lot of people bring up Brett Brown, whether or not he could hold his players accountable. I think that's a fair question. But the other question is, can Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons be held accountable? And we don't know the distinction between that because they've only ever had one coach. And that to me is the biggest reason to change coaches up. That to me is the biggest reason to get somebody like doc rivers who has the clout and the pedigree to where he can, he can walk in there and be like, I've been here. I've been a head coach for 21 seasons or whatever it is. I've won a championship. I've coached Kevin Garnett. Um, I've coached Chris Paul. I've coached all of these superstars. Not all of them particularly love him, but he, he has that clout where he has done that in the past. And you can see how Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid respond. And I think Simmons and Embiid are two wildly different. Like by and large, I think Ben Simmons responds how you would want him to respond in terms of his work ethic and his preparation. The question is overcoming that, that, that the hurdle, that comfort zone, that whatever is holding him back from shooting in public. And I, don't like that to me. I have a little bit less question of the impact doc rivers can have, but you know, can you get Ben Simmons buy into a different role long-term? Can you get Joel Embiid beat into tip top shape to where he's bringing it every night and maybe his body language and his effort aren't as impacted by what's going on around him. Can you get them focused at a level that they haven't? I don't know. But the fact that I can say I don't know is I think where where he can step in and make that biggest impact um, in terms of like, you know, when they have like the scheme, like, do I think Doc Rivers are going to scheme and get Tobias Harris to be, you know, the next all star in the East? Like, no, I don't I don't really think that's going to happen. Like, do I think Doc Rivers is necessarily going to find the perfect scheme in the 2020 or 2021? I guess at that point um, for a post up big and a non shooting um, point guard. Like, that's still going to be challenging. Like do I think the Sixers are going to come into a, a playoff matchup against Boston Celtics and have the tactical advantage in terms of coaching? No, probably not. But if you can get Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons to take that next step, probably doesn't matter. Um, so I think I think that's where you're looking at with Doc Rivers.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree. I, I don't really you took everything that I had to say, Derek. So I don't have much to add on that. And I think Doc Rivers isn't worried about Ben's shooting. I think all of us are myself included, but I think Doc Rivers, it, it, like he said, in his pet press conference, he's not too worried about it, and we'll just see where it goes, but I think you're right, having them take the next step step is important.
3: Yeah, I think, like you said, Derek, I think buy-in is going to be huge. Uh, like you said, we haven't really seen if Joe is going to respond a certain way. We haven't really seen him buy-in every single game of every single season yet. Part of that has obviously been injuries early on, but last season we were... It's, was very obvious that the personnel around him did not help. He was not very happy with who was he was playing with necessarily, and that obviously impacted his effort some nights. And uh, well, obviously some of this comes down to what the front office does. Like, are more fluid pieces around them? Is does the roster fit better by the time next season starts? That will probably have a pretty big impact, especially on Joel. Yeah, with Ben, I've been pretty vocal on the podcast about just... I think we probably just have to accept Ben for who he is at this point. I, I don't really expect him to shoot a bunch of jumpers anytime soon. I Obviously, it would be nice if he was willing to space to the corner and take those spot-up jumpers consistently. But even so, defenses aren't going to respect him a ton until it, it's a real weapon. And I think with Ben, it's more just a buy-in, you know, can he really play that off ball role? Is he willing to? Is he willing to set screens and cut and do all the little things that Brett tried to have him do towards the end of the last season? We didn't get to see much of it because he got hurt, but I, I think that's really where they're going to be able to unlock Ben the most. And, you know, that's on doc. We'll see how it goes.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I, the, the, the jumper is, like you said, you're not going to, they're not going to space out to the corner and close out hard against Ben Simmons. Like it, we're many, many steps away from that happening. And you're not at a point where you're going to want him taking a pull-up three off the dribble. Like, please don't. Uh, But you hope that just getting... Like, there are... It's going to be a progression. And the first step is getting the point where you are comfortable shooting when you're open by 15 feet in the corner. Uh, And I do think that is a goal that you want him to get to. Not just because that will space the floor now, but that will hopefully lead to... I mean, look, he's 24. Like, it's not just about this season. It's about four years down the line, especially if you're saying like, he's going to be an off ball player. You need a a, a pick and roll point guard to pair with him. It would be great if you didn't have to run him at the elbow every time, or you didn't have to involve him in pick and roll every time. And he could still have some kind of impact off the ball. And do I think that that would have happened in the bubble if he played? No. No, of course not. Do I think that's going to happen in the early part of next season? No. Um, But the hope is that if you get past this sort of mental hurdle or this sort of comfort zone issue, then maybe it could happen years down the line or be a slow evolution. It would just be good to see, like it would just be good to see. Um, I don't think he's going to transform overnight for sure.
3: Yeah, for sure. I definitely think Ben, like you said, there's something holding him back, you know, in terms of like mentally getting over that hurdle and being willing to expand his game and to try new things. Uh, It's pretty clear that he's not comfortable trying a lot of new things. And that's definitely something he needs to improve, but, I think a lot of, you know, with the Ben Simmons discourse, I think a lot of the, like, LeBron and Magic Johnson comparisons early on maybe kind of, I don't know, hurt in a way because I just think some people have, you know, an expectation that he had or had an expectation that he was going to take this big next step and be one of the five best players in basketball. And I just don't, he's not that type of scorer. He's never going to be that type of scorer who you can go to and say, you know, ISO, create off the dribble, it's just not him. So, uh, that. I mean, I
2: think, I think there's a, a bunch which colors this kind of conversation. The first is that the Sixers mm-hmm. just don't have a a a real perimeter score. So his deficiencies get magnified because you don't have anybody else. I mean, they were giving the ball to Alec Burks. Like, Shake Milton was the savior at one point, and he barely played in his NBA career up to that point. So the fact that you don't have anybody else to really give you what Ben Simmons can't, just amplifies what he can't do. And it, 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 I think it leads to a lot of frustration also because he's playing next to a post-up center, like spacing just becomes a lot more crucial when you have a post-up center who's still trying to figure out how to read NBA defenses or read double teams at least. Um, and is, is, maybe a step slow in his decision-making. Well, when you have a player you can cheat off of is it amplifies, you know, and double teams or his ability to read double teams which then draws more attention to Simmons not being able to space the floor. So I think there's just a lot. And just that it's so weird. Like how many times you have to tell a player to shoot. Like, I feel like every time we talk about a player telling him to shoot less. And now you have a a, sort of like one of the most fundamental aspects of the game that like, he won't even try. It's just weird. And regardless of Mm -hmm. of what the impact of that is, when something is weird, it stands out and we overanalyze it. So I think there's a lot going into it. And also I think it really would be beneficial if he could now the viability of that i think is a completely different conversation but it really would be beneficial if he could at the very least make 34 to 35 percent of his catch to shoot corner threes which seems like that should be a reasonable end goal to get to it's just i don't know the whole thing is weird
3: yeah 100 I th- percent. i think the sixers are the kings of weird at this point you know there's <laughs> yes. a lot of stuff with that mm-hmm. team that just doesn't you know calculate but uh sure. So we'll we'll move into Doc Rivers in terms of his front office impact. Have you heard anything, Derek, about, you know, what voice he'll have next to Elton or next to, you know, Dinwoody and the other new guys? Uh, how or just what's your feeling on how much say he'll have in terms of personnel moves?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it is, is something that they haven't necessarily been too forthcoming with. You know, I think there is like, do I think he's going to be leading trade calls? No will they value his input more than I think a lot of other coaches? Yes, I do both because of his experience um, because I think that would be something that he would want. And also because there is a, you know, regardless of, of whether or not Elton brand has more power now than he did under the previous collaborative front office, he is still one of the most inexperienced GMs in the league. So there with that, I think comes a little bit of an opportunity for an established coach to, you know, weigh in, and I I do think they will value his input. I do think they will consult him on every move. Um, beyond that, I, th- I think it's still a little bit to be determined, but it is um, it will be something to watch for sure. I mean, when he was asked during that press conference, and he said, like, I'm looking forward to working with Elton, and he thinks the off-court is just as important as the on-court. Like, that was a little bit surprising and a little bit telling, I think. Um, yeah, I definitely think he will be weighing in on what he thinks the uh, Sixers should do.
1: Yeah, I mean, we kind of talked about this early in the podcast about how you know he's gonna be another voice in the front office. I th- I think that, like you said, Derek, he's gonna have a voice, he's gonna have an opinion. Now, is he gonna be telling Elden which players to go after? Probably not, but you know, at the same portion. With this team, you really don't know. <laughs>
2: yeah, really absolutely, don't. absolutely. And, and look, like, the question comes down to if if Elton says I want this guy and Doc says no, I don't, I don't agree with that. Where do they go? <laughs> like you said, I don't expect him to be being like. I think this guy at twenty one, I really like him. Like I don't, I don't think he's going to be, um, that involved. The question is whether or not, like, could he. You know, when they disagree strongly, it, it, it'll it be something like I'll be keeping my eye on it for sure.
3: Mm-hmm. And again, I, I mean, I think Scott O'Neill and Josh Harris probably factor into the equation too. Like, who, who are they going to listen to if
2: something 100%. like that occurs? Yep. Job titles don't uh, mean Jack if the owner trusts one guy and not the other. Yeah, for
3: sure. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, until Austin Rivers is in a six year uniform, we probably shouldn't <laughs> raise any, you know, alarms, but it, it's something to watch.
0: So now we're going to turn the corner and talk about our thoughts related to a recent quote by former Sixer, All-Star, All-NBA Charles Barkley. So he was pretty critical of the two Sixers Young Stars most recently. And here's the quote. Right now they're All-Stars. It's time to be superstars. We give you $167 million. We shouldn't be worried about your conditioning. We still shouldn't be wondering if a guy can shoot or if a guy's going to get in shape. If I just gave them $170 million last two years, it's time for them to grow up. So guys, does Charles Barkley have a point urging the two young stars to mature faster, or do we need to just let them develop at their own pace? Derek, what do you think?
2: It is interesting to hear Charles Barkley criticize someone for not being in shape. Now, to be fair, like Moses got <laughs> on him and and sort of turned him around for a portion of his in that regard, but it is, it is a little do as I say, not as I do. Um, does he have it? Sure. He has a point. Uh, like, I think some of this is, um, you yeah, know, I don't, Simmons shooting, I think is completely different. It's just, I don't think that is a maturity issue nearly as much as it's, it's, it's confidence and it's comfort. Like I think it's complete. It's just completely different. Like, I don't think, Ben Simmons is not shooting because he's immature. Do I think Joel Embiid could be in better? Of course, Joel Embiid could be better conditioned. Um,
1: but I don't. If you guys like, hear a baby screaming, that is my daughter. She's very excited. Oh sure, she just, does
2: she? I mean, does she have any? How's her jumper?
1: Um, uh, her her jumper is not existing yet. She's not even two. But um, I promise you, I'm going to develop it well, once she hits
2: like five. T- tuck that elbow. Tuck that elbow. Um. Look, I, the Sixers, I, the six or two stars, I think, need to, I do think they need to mature. Uh, and But I don't necessarily, like, Joel, yes, get in shape. I'd love to see one of them become a more consistent leader in the locker room. And it's tough because none of them are, I think, natural. like they, They're both natural introverts. But I think so much of a team can take on the personality of their star players. And I think the six would be well served if one of them more consistently stood up and led by example and like Joel's body language, I think sometimes can be improved and I'd love to see them uh, mature that way. But like I said, I just, I I don't view the jumper as maturity. Um, Mm -hmm. I think Joel needs to get in better shape. I think it's a hundred percent fair, but it's, it's like, I think, I think they need to grow as players too. Like, I think Joel needs to become a better and more patient and more willing passer out of the post. And not feel like he has to score all the time. And I think part of that is personnel. And there's, I think there's so much that goes into it. Um, you know, I think we sometimes overly simplify it. Like if Joel Embiid gets in better shape, the Sixers are set. No, the Sixers still have some very gl- glaring holes in their, their roster and their team that especially in today's NBA, in, in 2020, they need to resolve. And, and like Joel Embiid just magically playing at an MVP level doesn't solve all of these issues. And Joel Embiid being able to play 33 minutes at consistent effort just doesn't make all of these go away. So I think that's a little overly simplified from Barkley's point of view, especially for a guy who, you know, requested a trade out of a city because it was poorly run. Like you would expect maybe he would have a little more sympathy for two players who right now I think are on a, a pretty poorly run team. Um, so, yes, I think I think baseline, yes, they need to mature, especially, like I said, I think, I think Embiid in terms of being a, a – Little more cognizant of maybe being on the leadership role of the team and being in better shape. Certainly, I think he can make steps in those areas, but I also think that you know, by and large, the team has to improve too, and that specifically relates to personnel.
3: Yeah, I think you're spot on, Derek. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of ways for both of them to grow, but at the end of the day, I do I do think it's on you know Elton and that front office to make the personnel. Decisions make better personnel decisions and to put a team around them that can function. Uh, Rivers said it in his introductory press conference you know, that they've won 65% of their games together. It's pretty clear that it can work when the pieces around them make sense, like logically.
2: Like, the Sixers didn't beat, didn't lose to the Boston Celtics because Joel Embiid, you know, wasn't enough of a like because Joel Embiid's effort level or his, his, mm-hmm. his, his, his. his They lost to the Celtics because their best perimeter scorer was Alec Burks. Like, come on here. Like, yes, they need to make a a jump for sure. They also need a—I mean, they need more talent.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think the natural discourse is to, you know, just in general, you know, ESPN, TNT, whatever, is to blame the stars on a specific team. But a lot of the Sixers issues are just go much deeper than that. Obviously, Joel and Ben could get better. Yeah, Look, go ahead.
2: Joel, Joel Embiid could be—he could be a top five player in this game, and he's not right now. And like mm-hmm. I put, I put some of that on him. But even still, like they need—they—they they just need more. They need a better constructed team. This team is not—and—and and this is going to sound like I'm absolving Joel, and I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm not at all. Um, this team is about as poorly built around a post-up center as you can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Like you want to mm-hmm. see what he looks like with a real pick-and-roll creator, not just a pick-and-roll scorer, not just a, a Trey Burke not just an Alec Burks, but a real creative pick, step back three shooting, pick and roll score. It's an area of his game he's never really had in terms of being a role big man. I'd love to see whether he could add that. And I don't think he's ever going to be like, I do think he's going to turn into Bam out, out of bio, but could you get him an easy bucket or two per game that he doesn't have to work so hard for every time? Could you recognize him that he is not the quickest decision maker out of a double team? If you had more spacing around him, could you help with that? If you had a a, a a couple of shooters on the perimeter that teams were terrified of leaving, could you help resolve that problem? If you had someone like, I don't know, JJ Redick, who you can run that two-man game. If you go back, most of if you want to. If you go back and look at Joel Embiid's dunks in the half court, a lot of them come off of dribble handoffs with JJ Redick because that was the only way you could get the defense to worry about anything else on the floor. This team Thank is. Uh, then you've got. You know, Al Horford and Tobias Harris posting up when they shouldn't be. You've got Josh Richardson dribbling in the floaters when he shouldn't be. This team is not built to make use of a post-up score. Uh, the NBA isn't really designed anymore to really be a post-up center offense. And B has has he's the one single abse- exception of a high usage post-up center. Mm-hmm. I don't think the answer to the Sixers problems is Joel Embiid being more involved in the Sixers' offense. I think the answer to the Sixers' problems is making it so Joel Embiid doesn't have to be so involved in the Sixers' problems. And also, at that point, he gets in better shape. His defense is more consistent. Then you can sort of make both of those steps. But the biggest problem with the Sixers right now is they just do not have an offense that can succeed in the playoffs against the best of the best. And that I don't think is... you know, if, if If I look at Joel Embiid and I say, he needs to be in better shape, a lot of that has come comes defensively. I think that's where he can make the biggest easy gains. Offensively, I think they have a lot of work to do to be able to compete against the best.
3: Yeah, I mean, we can, again, just tie this back to our earlier points about the front office, and they've just given us no reason to trust them. Even if Elton has, you know, more decision-making power, which by all indications he does, is that really something we want at this point? So, yeah, I agree. They bring in Dinwiddie, who's not a personnel guy so it, it, it's it's not great and i'm, I'm with you i'm pretty much every point you made
1: yeah i i yeah. there's really nothing else i can really add to that point you you, you hit it right there on the head there derek so i, I don't need to add much more so i think we're going to transition to our last topic which is our social media question of the week uriah you're up take it away
0: Sure, guys. So this week on Facebook and Twitter, we posted a question for all the followers of the Sixer Sense. And the question was, which young Sixer will most likely have a breakout year under Doc Rivers? And the two choices were Shake Milton and Matisse Thibault. Let's start with Facebook. So on Facebook, most people didn't want to commit. So a lot of people said both right but freddie rodriguez yeah yeah, i know right so (laughs) freddie rodriguez he came out and just said shake fibel has a long way to go on the offensive side and on twitter we have a follower named rated ag at antoine garnett he said i wouldn't be surprised if doc starts matisse with starter minutes he grows that much faster he ready he ready that's what he said so Derek, what do you think about these two uh two guys on social media? Do you think they have a point? What do you think?
2: Well, so I think I think the only argument that this wouldn't be Matisse is that or I'm sorry, that this wouldn't be Shake is that Shake has already broken out. Like in terms of what he did last year, like I think there's a sense he could end up being a better player and not have as much success as he had at the end of last season. And by that I just mean like he can become he can develop and be more reliable but he was just so hot and last year when he he entered the rotation he was such a short stretch that that was probably never sustainable so he could have a drop in production be a better player Uh, and maybe people don't view it as him breaking out whereas i would view it as he's much more proven now as an nba rotation player in terms of who i think doc will be able to best utilize i think it is shake you know i think if you look at doc's team's they always have an abundance of pick and rolls and, and 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 shooting on the perimeter and players who can create in that environment. You know, I think Matisse Thybul is wonderful wonderfully intriguing as a defensive player. I think he's entirely unique and I think he can really like when you start looking at the Sixers, one of the sneaky things about this team is they were a real bad transition team, especially when Ben Simmons was off the court. And I think Matisse's Playmaking on defense can help unlock some of that, and I really hope that he grows and becomes a more consistent half-court player. But there is a not insignificant part of me that worries that his offensive limitations are so severe that I could see Doc getting frustrated with him a lot more than I could see Doc getting frustrated with Shake. So I think in the combination of Shake's shooting, his ball handling, you can put him in a little bit of pick and roll and two-man action. I think he is going to be having a more consistent role in Doc's rotation, and I think he will he will thrive in Doc's system. Relatively speaking.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I again agree with Derek. I mean, Matisse is wonderful, and I very much enjoy watching him, you know, rack up deflections. But with how the Sixers are constructed, the utility of a guy who cannot consistently shoot from three or dribble or do much of anything on offense is pretty limited. Uh, especially when it comes to like projecting towards the postseason, there's there's not a ton of usage for for Matisse on a on a really competitive team, so I, I do think that's an issue. We'll see if his shooting improves next season. Obviously, there's a lot of room for him to grow, and that's you know you can maybe flip that as a positive. But in, until that happens, Shake is the more useful guy. Like you said, Derek Doc likes the pick and roll quite a bit. Shake is one of the few guys on the roster who can sort of run a pick and roll, and he's probably the best perimeter shooter on the team right now and that's something the sixers very much need i'm sure doc will probably be keep shaking the starting lineup if if al is still on the team next year uh, i mean i guess milton would be my pick but i don't, like you said i don't know if anyone's gonna have like a huge breakout quote unquote i don't know if it's going to be anything of that magnitude
1: yeah i'm actually going to go the opposite way that chris said in terms of how shakes going to be used and i think shake is going to be the guy just because i think Matisse's shot's not going to develop that quickly, um, consistently. Anyway, I think when it comes to Milton, I think he's going to use him like he used Lou Williams and Jamal Murray in the past. He loves having a sixth man that can score and shake and very he can groom shake into that pretty well. I think that that would make more sense, especially if they can get a guy like Reggie Jackson in free agency. Because Shake Milton we know isn't a pure point guard and neither was lou williams or jamal uh crawford where i think and i think in in overall i think that that's why he's going to go to the bench because he's not a pure point guard i think he's a combo guard and i think that 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 type of role that doc has had on those clipper teams is going to suit milton just fine yeah i i would just say guys i i'm i don't know who to pick I, i think it
0: could be either one you guys make great points and uh, yeah, so I'm I'm gonna stay non-committal like a lot of the followers. So, Lucas or Chris, you ready to take us out?
3: Derek, thanks again for for coming on the podcast. We we really appreciate it, and we would love to have you on again in the future sometime.
2: Yeah, it was my pleasure. It, you don't have to twist my arm too hard to get me to talk six. <laughs> okay.
3: Yeah. Well, that's uh-huh. good to hear. Um, you can all follow Derek on Twitter if you're not already. You know what are you doing? Um, It's at Derek Bodner MBA. You can read all his great work at theAthletic slash dot com slash Philly, and you can listen to his podcast, uh, the Sixers Beat Podcast. Great stuff on there all the time. To all our listeners, we really appreciate you for tuning in to another week of Sixers conversation. Obviously, this is a very tough time in the world, and there's a lot going on for a lot of people. So we really do appreciate you giving us the time of week to just you know sit back and talk Sixers, and we'll be back again next week.